AI is really, really good at replacing mediocre work. And it will probably mostly do mediocre work for a while to come. So if your job is to make mediocre book covers for science fiction paperbacks, you're out of a job. If you are a mediocre radiologist reading x-rays, you're out of a job. If you are a mediocre copywriter writing blog posts for one of those blogs that have a new post every four minutes, you're out of a job. Because we can get mediocre work for free, which means you either have to say, how can I be distinctive, just me and me alone, something that other people will try to copy via AI, but it's my, me, my handwriting, or you start having lots and lots of AI working for you and you bring it to the world in a way that creates value. Today is a special day. It's an absolute treat, a treasure, an epic episode with one of my favorite people on the planet, Seth Godin. Now, many of you know that Seth for decades has been inspiring people and teaching them how to live an amazing and very, very creative life. Not only has he uh, launched startups, uh, been editors on magazines and books, um, he has been writing very, very good work for decades. In fact, he's been writing a blog every day for something like 20 years. He's got 20 best-selling books, 21, I think, because we're celebrating his 21st book with our particular show today, translated into all sorts of languages. He is a marketing genius. He is credited as one of the people who came up with the idea of email marketing. He's got uh, a life-changing workshop called the Alt-MBA that he teaches. And in addition to all these things, he's got a new book, which is called The Song of Significance. And that is what we talk about today. If you're aware that the economy is changing and unstable on lots of different axes for all kinds of different workers, creators and not, we're aware of AI, we're aware of call center work that is stifling and, and life and soul sucking. If you have felt disconnected and know others that have, this book is for you. At the core of today's show, we explore what's really at the root of these trends. What challenges do we face and how can we best those challenges in a way that is honorable and noble and very, very effective? No matter what our role, it's within our power to change, to change ourselves and to change the world. Because as he writes, humans aren't a resource. We are the point. So I'm going to get out of the way and let you enjoy this far wide reaching and really lovely, insightful conversation with the one and only Mr. Seth Godin. I have been looking forward to today for a very long time. Seth, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being a guest. Writing a book is a slog, but sometimes when you're <laughs> slogging, you say to yourself, well, at least I'll get to talk to Chase again. <laughs> uh, I have enjoyed catching up with you just momentarily here before we hit record. Uh, at the at the risk of doing more catching up, um, I'm looking to hear a little bit about, we're going to talk about a new book that you've got out today, among some other things. I I trotted out my copy of Tribe, so I've got a couple of questions about some former work of yours. But you got a new, a new book out in the world, and 
it's incredibly well-timed. I would love to hear, I think, again, I, I said all the nice things about you in the intro. So everyone either knows you <laughs> already from your brilliant work or from the intro, but I'm fascinated to know up front here, how did you, how did you even begin to tackle the, the problems that you articulated and the solutions in your new book, The Song of Significance? It seems that you have to have written this years and years and years ago because we know how long it takes to publish a book. What you saw something coming, and maybe you could start off our show today by articulating what it is that you saw coming and how it is upon us now and what is this challenge? What are we facing? So work has always been hard. That's why they call it work. And maybe you move boulders or chop down trees. Uh, and then the factory came along and work got even more toxic sometimes. But at least it worked in that the deal was very clear and people got some of what they were promised. And we could imagine a life of work. And what's happened in the last 10 years or so, amplified by COVID, amplified by AI, amplified by the death of the industrial factory model, is that work isn't working anymore. We've got billionaires firing the disabled online for fun, for kicks. We've got people doing quiet quitting or just shifting jobs, people deciding that the promise that the boss has made for all those years was completely empty and they're dissatisfied. And we say to ourselves, we're going to spend 2,000, 3,000 hours a year doing this, most of our waking hours, and it is not fueling us or feeding us. And at the same time, the bosses are using computers to take over most mediocre work that most people do. And we are in a position with our climate where we've made a mess of things. So in the middle of all that, with all the profits that we're making, with all the education that we have, I ask, well, what's the point? Why did we even bother? Is the purpose of work simply to enhance shareholder value? Because I don't think it is. And I saw what was happening online. I saw what was happening to people I care about. And I wrote a rant. It's just very much a rant that says, here are some ways to think about what could make work matter again. Work that matters with people who care. Let's get real or let's not play. Let's figure out how to spend our days doing something significant. And that's what the book's trying to do. And it does a masterful job, I will add. Um, but without going into a sales pitch on the book, I think the best sales pitch for the book is just to start to peel the layers that you've built there because there is a lot. Specifically, what's really at the root of these trends? What's the base, like, what is the baseline? Why are we here? Why aren't, why weren't we here 10 years ago? And why hasn't it been delayed for another 20 years? Like why now? And what is specifically at the root? You know, when they, when they invented the steam shovel, the ditch diggers sort of freaked out, but the rest of us didn't really worry about it um, because we weren't ditch diggers. The smart ditch diggers, the adroit ones figured out how to, use a steam shovel, and their productivity went through the roof. Uh, what has happened, thanks to surveillance, computers, the internet, connection, is miracles. You and I are sitting here talking thousands of miles apart, that we know that 
whatever we want to know, that a generation, if you're 20 years old now, 25 years old, you have lived your entire life without the feeling of, I don't know the answer and I cannot know the answer because you have a phone in your pocket that knows the answer. That is new. 10,000 years of humanity, that is new. And so with all of this information flowing, bosses, people who had factories, people who are trying to improve productivity, they have a challenge, which is we can measure everything. Let's measure the easy stuff. So proxies come along, ways to say, how many hours are you sitting in the chair? How many keystrokes did you type? How many friends do you have online or followers? And so because bosses turn the dial, they turn the dial. How do we get more of that and more of that and more of that? And the problem is we've been measuring the wrong things. And we've been racing to polish yesterday instead of to invent tomorrow. And now, now that we can't make the machines go any faster, now that people largely have enough stuff, what matters? And the bosses are saying, I'm in a jam because I can't figure out what to do next. And the workers are saying, I'm tired of being a cog in the machine. And what I think we have to do is have an honest conversation with each other about who's it for and what's it for? What's the change we're seeking to make? Why are we even here? What matters? And if we can get our arms around that, then we can use these tools for good, not use them to sort of take things from other people. What is it that really matters? I'm going to steal a quote from the back of the book. The purpose of a beehive isn't to make honey. Honey is a byproduct of a healthy hive. So what is the purpose? So I got deep into the bees in my work in creating this book. Um, and we're not bees, and I'm glad we're not bees. First of all, they only live three weeks. But in general, it's very easy to figure out what a beehive is for, the change that it makes, how it makes it. What humans are for is a lot more complicated. So when Milton Friedman showed up with his fake Nobel Prize 50 years ago and said the only purpose of a corporation is to maximize shareholder profits, there was a whole bunch of people in senior management who thought, this is great. What a simple answer. Now I can excuse all my brutality and I can do anything I want as long as I make one number go up. But it's more complicated than that. It is possible to be a barista and have a significant job. It is possible to work for an important nonprofit and have a non-significant job. It's not the sort of tagline of what your organization does. It's did you stare into the face of change today and bring humanity to work? Did you do something that might not work? Did you do something that could not easily be done by a form or an AI? That when we show up as a human to connect with an interesting problem, we feel more alive. It's what we seek to do with our days. And too often, because we've been indoctrinated by school, we say, no, 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 all I want to do is get an A on the test, do as little as possible, and then go home. And I think we've had enough Netflix and chill. What we really need is meaning. Mm. I am thinking fondly back to you were one of the, if not the very first people to read the draft manuscript of my first book called Creative Calling. My, it was actually Which I loved. It was actually my third book, but it was the first word book. So I just called it my first book. And I had a very clumsily worded 
phrase that the first thing that you did, I think it used to open the book, you just cross out every like fifth word and tightened it into a simple phrase. And it is a question that I'd asked. And essentially you distilled it down to, is the way that you're living working? Semicolon, is the way you're working working? And when I read this book, I got chills because it felt like there was this connection that we had through this process of your very kind, thoughtful, helpful, encouraging words around the book and solving a really important problem. Specifically is the way we're working, working and are the ways that we are living working. And if you specifically what gave me the chills was this little phrase that you've got at the beginning of the book. When you dance on the edge of infinity, there's always enough. Because you aren't taking an opportunity from anyone else, you are creating it. Now, this is especially empowering for this audience, I think our, our listeners, because we acknowledge if you've been listening to the show for first of all, for like nine minutes at least now, or hopefully for a bunch of episodes, you know that we believe deeply in creativity around here. So in the face of these challenges, corporate <clears throat> greed, max, you know, record-breaking corporate profits, AI, the things that you've like highlighted on the horizon that are big challenges, there are those of us that believe that we can create a future. And I say, I use the word create very actively. Yeah. Where we are maybe not not subject to this, but we are insulated from the negativity and we can bring some of it around to help, to help not just ourselves, but to help those around us in community. So at a 30,000 foot level, help us, help those who are listening right now start to think differently about a world that they can't, what can we do to start to create this future that we yeah. seek? So I, I did a talk the other night in New York, and there were a whole bunch of people there who are the kind of people that you hang out with who listen to this podcast. And one of the questions somebody said is, I used to find emotional satisfaction and creative grounding at work. But as I've moved up in the organization, I've found that I can only find it in my hobbies, in my weekends, in my spare time. And so when I'm at work, I'm just sort of zoning my way through it. I think that's okay. Do you? And I said, well, it's not up to me to decide whether it's okay or not. But I got to tell you, it breaks my heart to hear that. Because it's possible that you have found a place to work where you are so controlled that you would get fired if you did anything human at all. But I think that's unlikely. I think instead what has happened is you have been seduced and indoctrinated into becoming a cog in a system because it feels safer. And sometimes people say the creative life should be an easy one. Let it be easy. And I'm not in that camp. I think the kind of thing that you and I keep talking about is hard. It is hard because of resistance. It is hard because it might not work. And so if you're lucky enough to have something even approaching a steady job, why would you waste that opportunity by hiding? And that what we get to do instead is bring our real skills to the table to say, lots of people know how to use Photoshop. 
And lots of people know how to press this button on stable diffusion. But there aren't very many people who have the guts to speak up about an opportunity or to call something out when it could be better. That when we are generative in our work, not taking, but giving, as you pointed out in that quote, we're creating opportunity. And if you want to see it from a very high vantage point, realize that since I was born in 1960, we have created more than 6 billion jobs on this planet. Where did they all come from? They came from people finding a need and filling it, from asking a difficult question and inventing something that might not work. And it doesn't matter if you're the CEO. In fact, it's easier if you're not the CEO to do this work. It's easier to say, what if, or how about, or yes and, and to create the conditions for other people who want to come with you to do this, to come along on the journey. And ironically, given where we started this conversation, the company actually makes more money when you do that. Two forks I want to go on. One is a very short little spur. I'm going to, we're going to tackle this one quick and then I'm going to go to this other one. And one I want to tackle quickly is you said, it's easier if you're not the CEO, but there are a bunch of CEOs and, or I'll call them small business leaders, CEOs of, of small companies that do have to think beyond just the, okay, I want to come to come prepared to challenge the main thesis of this meeting or whatever. Yep. And so let's talk to the leaders for a second. How can, if their job is more difficult, what advice would you share to them about how to manage this uncertain future? Well, so you're, you're highlighting two of my favorite words. Because people think they mean the same thing and they don't, which is leading and managing. So many organizations need a manager. Managers use power and authority to get what they got yesterday faster and cheaper. If you ever need surgery, God forbid, I hope that there's a manager in the operating room because you don't want someone making stuff up as they go along. Leaders create the conditions for change. They don't have to do it themselves. In fact, they probably shouldn't. So if you think, about a, a well-known company or a tiny company leader, what they actually need to do is figure out how to get the right people in the room for the right reason with the right question so that the room figures out what's going on. It's not your job to solve every problem. It is your job to create the environment where the problems get solved. And so, yes, a lot of people listening to this are CEO of one, com a one person company or a slightly bigger one. But you have colleagues, you have peers, you have places you can go to find the others. And you've been hiding your truth as tightly as you can so you won't be seen as a fraud or an imposter. But if you can go to somebody and say, this is the hard part, this thing, if I could solve this part, I could serve people better. If you can just say that out loud, you will be amazed at what will happen after that. Mm. I'm so tempted to keep going down that spur, but I promised to put a pin. No, in it's all good. Whatever you want. It's your okay. show. I've been rant, I've been ranting for 20 minutes solid. <laughs> oh, oh I'm, I, I promise I'm going to put a pin there. I'm going to go back to the other one and and sort of turn the tables on, or I guess shift the perspective because so many of these things that we are that are upon us now that are technologically, you know, changing and as an extension of that shifting so much in our world there's the opportunity to look at that in fear and judgment and um 
I'll just leave it that fear and judgment. Or you can look at the fact that because there's an AI that can write shitty business copy now, that you're free of not having to do that. So let's sort of try and shift the mindset here. This is perhaps the most unique and interesting time to possibly do something new. You, if there was ever a, you know, you, I like to use the phrase, you can't stand out and fit in at the same time. So if mm -hmm. there was ever, it's like, if not me, who, and if not now, when? It, we could yeah. see it as, holy smokes, now's my time. What would you say if that was the prompt uh, for your, your, your next uh, rant, as you like to say? So AI is really, really good at replacing mediocre work. And it will probably mostly do mediocre work for a while to come. So if your job is to make mediocre book covers for science fiction paperbacks, you're out of a job. If you are a mediocre radiologist reading x-rays, you're out of a job. If you are a mediocre copywriter writing blog posts for one of those blogs that have a new post every four minutes, you're out of a job. Because we can get mediocre work for free. Which means you either have to say, how can I be distinctive, just me and me alone, something that other people will try to copy via AI, but it's my, me, my handwriting. Or you start having lots and lots of AI working for you and you bring it to the world in a way that creates value. And so what we have is this dilemma, the same dilemma that wedding photographers faced 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, nobody at a wedding had a camera except the wedding photographer. So all of a sudden, people started showing up with cameras. And wedding photographers said, how dare you? You don't know what you're doing. You don't know how to take pictures. Everybody here is stealing my, my income. This is not okay. And they had a tantrum. And those wedding photographers are out of business. And other wedding photographers showed up and said, A, I can coordinate the work of lots of people if they all just upload their photos. Or B, I can take wedding pictures that you could never imagine taking with an amateur and uh, a phone. Either one of those was a fine answer. The answer of put away your phones, not an okay answer. And the same thing is going to happen here. Which means that when you go to work, whatever it is you do, you have a new competitor or a new employee, it's a robot. I would rather have robots working for me than compete with one. But what the decision I made with my writing is every word I write from now on, and always has been, is by me. No AI, zero. Because I want to push myself to be more distinctive, to write a blog post every day that says there's no way an AI could have written it like this. So you got to pick and you can wear different hats on different days. But if you're not spending half an hour a day using uh, GPT-4 or something similar, you really don't have standing to talk about this. Mm. Yeah, there is something about just it's being this big amorphous blob of computers, right? This like you could put them in quotes. It's like the computers or the robots are going to take, you know, and, and yet if you can change the mentality, you can learn to use them or recognize the work that they can do so that you are able to do something different. Um, there's, I guess there's an education process that as a culture, I think we are very early in on, and yeah. it is very, very confusing to many. 
And since the book talks so much about leadership, and I do want to point out that you've acknowledged it's a, it's whether you are leading your own company, a small workforce, or you know you're a, a Fortune 100 CEO, all this can be true. What should we, how should we, if ought at all, embrace and think about? Like, give us a framework for thinking about all these new tools and whatnot. Rather, it's not just throwing stones because there are some, sure. as you said, there's some value. The, the good, you know, ditch diggers learn to use the steam shovel. So, you know, what, give us a framework for thinking about AI and the role in our jobs as leaders, as creators, as entrepreneurs. So um, Tom Peters said, you can't shrink your way to greatness. And I think this is where it begins. So seven, eight years ago when I used to travel, I wake up four o'clock in the morning as I often do. And I think I'm in a Nashville. I, it's early in the morning. I'm not sure. I dial zero and I say, uh, what time does the gym open? Because for some mysterious reason, the gym isn't open all the time. And the person who answers the phone, I hear clicking and clacking. And I realize this person is not in my hotel. That the person who runs the hotel has figured out that they could just take all the overnight operators and move them to one place and then give that person a, uh, a database. They're typing in the question I just asked, and then they read me the answer. And I say to myself, I hope this person understands that that job is about to disappear. Because the same mindset that said, I'm going to cost reduce down to a few operators is going to say, I'm going to cost reduce down to none. Yeah. Or you think about the customer service lines at most places that are designed to hang up on you as opposed to actually help you. So the alternative, instead of shrinking your way to greatness, is to say, wait a second, customer service is free. That if a customer calls me with a problem, in that moment, I have an unparalleled opportunity to connect, to get under their skin and to create value. So maybe I use AI to create phone interactions that happen instantly the second someone gets stuck with anything. And I use all the money I save from that to hire even more humans ready to do the other stuff off the charts beautifully. Because no one's pushing them to get off the phone really fast. They've figured out that the more they spend on those people, the higher the brand loyalty and the more they make in the long run. So, you know, if I think about, I just signed up for some other service that costs $9 a month. Well, if it's a, if it's a tech service that costs $9 a month, that means I'm a $300 customer over the course of three years. And I just unsubscribed after a day because I got stuck and no one would help me. So, if they had paid someone $7 to answer the call and teach me what I needed to know, they would have made $300. But their mindset is how cheap can I make all these interactions, how mechanical, and get humans out of it. But humans want to talk to humans. So let's figure out when one should happen, over-invest in that, because the AI is going to make it so that the stuff that's not worth investing in, we don't have to. Let's take this job that this uh, fictitious person you just made up has who's answering the phone at four in the morning and looking something up. Their days are numbered. We want them to know this and we want to do it with compassion and, and kindness and help them understand it. And you've got a framework. Uh, this framework in the book talks about surveillance. And 
essentially they are being surveilled, which is the, yeah. the, the lens through which decisions are being made about this person's employment, about their viability long-term, about how we can actually save costs. They're studying your work to see how to make it go away, essentially. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so talk to us about surveillance, surveillance culture. And there are people who are listening right now that even if it's a side, you know, if they identify as a professional creator and they've got a side hustle, say, as a, you know, a customer support person from home or remote or any of these folks, or if by extension, you can imagine a, a host of other jobs that may have some of the same attributes that would incline us to believe that they will not be around for a long time. Or there are jobs that we don't know if they're going to go away, but they are being surveilled right now. Right. What would you say to those folks? Well, How can we, what I say we to the leader, help them? The leader, this is the key part in terms of talking to leaders, particularly small organizations, if you don't trust people and you surveil them, you've already announced what their future is going to be. And there's a little graph in the book. And for people who are watching this yeah. video, I just happen to have a printout right here. Awesome. And you know, if we have high stakes work and low trust, we have to have surveillance because we don't know that driver. We don't know that system as the customer. We're not going to give our life over to somebody like airplane pilots. We don't want airplane pilots to do anything without a checklist because you've never been in a plane with this person before. You want them to do it exactly the same way under surveillance. On the other hand, where significance lives is when it's high stakes and high trust. So it's not particularly high stakes at the Marriott Hotel at four in the morning, but it could be made to feel that way, that I am more likely to pick a hotel where I am treated like a person, not like somebody who's just uh, a, a, an ATM machine. And that means that the database in front of the person who answered the phone tells that person who I am and what my background is. And now that person has the freedom, the trust, to make me feel really good that I picked this hotel. Why would I pick a hotel that doesn't know anything about me and that doesn't want to treat me well when I can come back to this hotel and a human being can start my day in a way that's delightful? Now, I can extend this to somebody who works in Photoshop because if your job is to be freelance and you've decided to race to the bottom to list your work on Upwork and go to the person who's looking for the cheapest possible person, don't be surprised that you're going to be surveilled and not trusted. Because when you pick your clients, you pick your future. And the clients you picked are people who are oscillating between just typing some words into some AI or paying you $4. The alternative is to build a practice where you get clients who demand more of you and insist on paying you more because that's part of the narrative of what they're buying. And this is a choice for every single person who decides to be a creator. And another example of this, uh, there's a Broadway uh, actress who lives on my street. She's been in film and movies for 40 years. She's slightly well-known. And she still goes to auditions. And the problem is when you go to auditions, you say, well, there's a whole bunch of cogs out here in the room. I'll be slightly better than all the other cogs and they'll pick me. The alternative, when the strike is over, is write your own stuff. Because if you write the screenplay, they have to cast you. And that changes everything. So this is a deeply human book 
because what I'm arguing is you should write your own screenplay. Mm. For those who have the book in front of them and or are willing to buy it at the moment, which I we're very good. Our our uh, listeners are avid buyers, and this is the most relevant book for our community that uh, has come across this podcast, this show in years. It's again called The Song of Significance. That chart is on page 43, in case you're in case you're curious. The surveillance <laughs> significance, impersonal comfort, the high stakes, low stakes, high trust, low trust. Like, what is that? A two by two. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, I want to continue pulling on this. Let's try and make this a positive thing. What we're seeing is we're seeing a little glimpse of the future through a narrow aperture that it's on us now to start to understand where this is going. And as you said, which I love, because I love our, our free will, it's, it's up to us now to start to make some decisions, some choices. If you are in that job where you are being surveilled, now's a good time to look for a different job. If you are- Or to just change your job without leaving. Yeah. Okay. That's, a, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So that's the thing. And- if you are an actor who lives on Seth Godin Street, it's time to start thinking about writing your own script. As I've said in my book, if you don't write your own script, someone else will. So this is an amazing moment in time for us to start the thing that we have been wondering about, that we have been kicking the can down the road. And so for those people, I would love for you to give them some advice because going from zero to one, is hard and scary and you've written about this at length which is why this is maybe even a bit of a softball for you but i do think that this is a very important moment for our listeners what you've done is so difficult and you forgot how hard it was what you did that was so difficult is you walked away from the placement office you walked away from the easy answers at christmas dinner you walked away from the healthcare plan. You walked away and said, no, I need to do my craft. I need to follow this muse. I need to create beauty. I need to use these digital tools, mostly digital tools, to create something that have my fingerprints on it. That's extraordinary. I cannot minimize that. And now we blink. And we blink because at some level, you feel like an imposter. At some level, you're exhausted. And at some level, you can't even imagine where the clients you need could even come from. And what you mostly signed up for was to have a job without a boss. What you mostly signed up for was just the good parts of what you thought a creative practice could be. And the problem with that is that in a competitive space, it doesn't stay stable. And number two, you do have a boss. It's you. And you're terrible at it. You wake yourself up in the middle of the night telling yourself you're not very good. You belittle yourself for not working hard enough. And you say nasty things about your future all the time in the back of your head. That boss is making you miserable. So you need better clients. You need a better boss. And you need a different practice. And you and I have talked about the practice before. But the practice is... Understanding that talent is insufficient and talent might not even exist, but that you can build the skills and that you can come to work on a regular basis and that you can be strategic 
about what it is to be the CEO of someone who has as many skills as you do. And you're not going to get to do watercolors that sell for $9,000. I know that you want to. You're just not going to get to. So given that we have changed so many rules about how things are created, which you took advantage of for a while, and now are taking advantage of you, you're going to have to change again. And I'm sorry. I am speaking as somebody who was in the computer game business and had a switch and was in the book business and then watched the book industry fade and fade and fade. And then was in the DVD business and watched it fade. And then AOL was my biggest customer and I watched them go away. And the list goes on and on that when you live by tech, you're just going to have to be disrupted by tech. And it's happening again. And it's not easy. And it might not even be fair. But it's also an opportunity to say, who has a problem and what kind of problem do they have that a human can solve? And the more human we make our work, the more likely it is we'll get paid and respected the way we deserve. You have been pretty good at, through your imagination, through examples you've previously you know, worked out in the book and other talks and, and whatnot, being able to on the fly just articulate really interesting ways of solving challenges. And you've come up with a couple examples already in this, in our short conversation so far, but let's, let's pretend we're talking to a person right now. And there's a person on the other end of this podcast, because there, there are hundreds of thousands, other people on the end of this right now. What are examples of things that are very, very specific examples that are not the tactics that they would go to switching from being a Photoshop expert to something else. But I want to know about mindset shifts that, that the people who are listening, because right. to me, that's like the base of the pyramid. You have to shift your mindset before you can yep. have habits, before you can get goals. So let's, let's go to mindset place, because I think it's, you know, in the particular lies the universal. This, we're talking about a person, but what are some of the mindset mindset shifts? Don't say that too many times fast. That's a, you're going to get yourself in trouble there. Get, that's a new rating for the show. Um, I, talk, I would like to do this twice and see if I'm coming, honing in at the right Great. thing. Uh, three kinds of people work at a typical restaurant, a bottle washer, a cook, and a chef. If you're a bottle washer, your job is to, as close as you can, approach the asymptote of perfectly clean dishes in no time flat. That's all you do over and over and over again. That is completely low-skilled cog work. It's important. It's essential. The dishes have to be washed, but it's an easy job to get, and it's an easy job to lose. The next step is the cook. And the cook says, please hand me the recipe. And their job is to efficiently execute the recipe. There's way more skill involved in being a cook. And often when a bottle washer gets promoted to cook, there's a lot of stretching that has to go on because now it's not just a linear process. There's 18 things and there's bells going off. And you have to time everything. But the real mindset shift is when you become a chef. Because if as the chef, you're cooking all day, you're not being a very good chef. The chef's job is to write the recipes. The chef's job is to visit the customers. The chef's job is to be aware of what's happening at the restaurant down the street and across the world. So the first thing that we need to do is go through this three-step process of figuring out, do I even see things beyond my ability to make a pixel dance for me? And what, does it, what would it mean in this setting to be a chef? Mm. 
Okay. So then the second mindset shift, uh, I think you happen to magically have a copy right there in your hand. I wrote a book many years ago called Tribes. And Tribes is a book about community. And what it says is that human nature is different than many other species because we're better together. And people really want to be in community. And I'm not um, talking about the historic 5,000-year-old tribes of the desert, nor am I talking about the uh, traumatized and uh, victimized first peoples of North America and other places. I'm just talking about this natural setting that human beings have, 150 people, 500 people, 30 people in a group. We need that. We need someone to organize that. And if you as a creator bring with you a circle of people who give each other the benefit of the doubt, who trust each other, who can exchange ideas, it's going to take a long time for a computer to replace that work. And so the biggest mindset shift is to shift from I made this to we made this. And that's what I did with the Carbon Almanac. So there were 300 full-time, I was a full-time volunteer. There were 300 other volunteers and it grew to 1,900 people in 90 countries. And together, we made a 97,000 word book that was footnoted and illustrated and grafted and charted and didn't have one significant error. And we did it together in five months because it's possible to do that now. And that, I think, is the next frontier of what it means to be this kind of creator. There's a section of the book called Let's Get Real. Mm -hmm. And that the promise of that section is a set of new skills for a new way of work. What are some of those skills, some of the ones that you deem to be most important? And um, where, where can we start? Okay, so let's say we agree that we need to make work, work more human, that creative work is going to add more value, and that doing work in teams is almost always going to be more generative and resilient than going to a desert island by yourself. When those things are present, we need to create the conditions for a different way of interacting that's not, I am the boss, do what I said. That is not, I am weak, and so I will criticize you to make you weaker. It's a totally different language. So I list a few of them, but I want to pick my favorites for this kind of community. My favorite one for sure is criticize the work, don't criticize the worker. That this is something that every one of your clients, every one of your peers needs to promise the other before you begin, right? Mistakes are the way forward. We are trying to invent the future. We're predicting the future. We're trying things out that haven't been done before. You cannot do that at the very same time you say it's error free because that is factory work. Can't do both at the same time. Often your clients are confused about this. You are confused about this. And then you let yourself become a perfectionist, which is another way of hiding. Okay, I'll do three or four more. I love this. No, this is great. We are here to make change happen. If you're not seeking a change, don't call a meeting. If you're not seeking a change, don't show me what you just made. If you're not seeking a change, don't ask a question. Don't launch a product. Don't put something up for sale. What is the change you seek to make? And it can be small. It can be giant. But if there isn't a change, don't waste my time. 
because that's why we we're here, not to do what we did yesterday. That means we are acting with intention. We can announce what we seek to do, even though it opens us up to valid criticism of the work. You told me you were trying to do X, but I'm looking at the audience and no one is doing Y. Therefore, you should do it a different way because we just saw, right? It's so much easier to say, oh, I'm mysterious. I'm a creator. You'll have to figure out what I was trying to do. Well, no, that's a cop out. We should do this with intention. Um, turnover is okay. This one freaks out some people because we have been brainwashed by bosses, by industrialists to say, you shouldn't have a resume, shouldn't be on LinkedIn, shouldn't have lots of jobs in your background. You should work here forever. Well, that's good for them in the short run. But the fact is when the world changes, when the change we seek to make changes, if you don't want the change we're seeking to make, this might be a good time for you not to be here. That defending an old status quo that we have chosen to walk away from is just getting in everybody's way. And if we can say, this bus is going to Topeka, that one is the one that's going to Cleveland, it's way easier to get the bus to where it's going as opposed to constantly bickering about the change we seek to make. So we used these and many others in the almanac because anyone could leave at any time. So my main job was to say, here's what two good pages of the almanac look like. Here is the change the almanac seeks to make. And if those don't work for you, those two things, please don't debate it because that's what we're doing here. But if you can come up with a better way to do what I just said, please do that. I didn't write the book. I didn't design the book. I just established a standard and said, it's this direction, please improve this. So when we can learn to work collaboratively, where it's not about scarcity and claiming credit, it's about abundance and creating opportunity, the work will follow. This is the future. It is not, I can uh, drive a, a, a railroad tie faster than the steam engine. John Henry tried, it doesn't work or I can illustrate faster than Photoshop AI, because I can't. I have heard you say, you've said to me in person, and I've heard you say it in other places before. Um, no, I actually have time. I'm in New York. Shoot me a note. We'll go to my wife's cafe. We'll get some pastries. You have time. And this is not an accident. Please share with us how you have created this time and space such that you can do this amazing work. And I'll just throw one other sort of to paraphrase uh, something possible. Someone who's successful and fulfilled has an empty calendar and they don't have an empty calendar because they have become successful and fulfilled. They, they are, the empty calendar is actually a, means to becoming successful and fulfilled. So you've, you seem to master that and explain to people in very simple terms, if you can, how this is possible that a, that it is possible B how are, you know, what are some of the insights that you've learned in doing this and um, yeah, even maybe some tactics. Okay. So I haven't mastered anything, uh, <laughs> but I, I am 
proud to be on the path anyway. Okay. Uh, if you're a cog in the machine and you want your productivity to go up, the only way to do it is to work more hours because that's what you charge by the hour. And that's what you produce by the hour. But if you're not a cog in the machine, more hours isn't what you sell to the public. What you sell is a change. So how do we make this change happen? And if you want to win the New York City Marathon, training 15 hours a day will not work. Because within three days, you're just not going to do what you need to do. Your body will stop doing what it needs to do. So what is the change I seek to make? Well, it is not to write books faster than other people, nor is it to write the same book somebody else just wrote, but a little cheaper than they wrote it. My job is to write a blog post. There's going to be one tomorrow, not because it's perfect, but because it's Friday, is to write a blog post that people will choose to email to other people because to do so would make their life better. My job is every once in a while to give a speech or to write something that sits with people. But in my entire life, I've probably come up with 10 really big ideas. 10, but that's a lot because one of them was email marketing, right? It adds up if you come up with 10 really big ideas. Putting yourself on the hook for that is hard because in the six hours you're spending puttering around, trying to understand why this is like this, visiting this store to see why there's a line out front, interviewing people who are standing at this other bakery, like, what made you come to this bakery? I had no idea why I'm asking these questions. I am just trying to understand. But I know that at some point I'm going to do something that's really hard work, so hard that most people avoid it which is to say something that I cannot prove is true, which is to assert something where I have no deniability. And if you can seek out that, right? How many paintings did Jackson Pollock actually do that changed the art world? Not that many, right? Yes, he had a study with Thomas Hart Benton. Yes, he had to go down a whole bunch of blind alleys. Yes, he did a whole bunch of things along the way that did not pay off. But he wasn't sitting there doing drip paintings 18 hours a day over and over again saying, I figured this out and I'm done. He was exploring. And so in my case, because I need boundaries, I have a very limited attention span. I said, I don't go to meetings. I don't use Twitter or whatever that thing's called. I don't use Facebook and I don't watch television. So I just got myself 10 free hours a day that most people don't have. And Instead, I have to have the difficult conversation with someone that says, I know you want to have a meeting, but please send me a Google Doc instead. That took 15 hard seconds because that's awkward, but it's okay because I got back 45 minutes that I would have had to spend talking to someone neither one of us wanted to have a conversation about. And it lets me get back to the thing, which is finding the liminal spaces. So what are the tactics? The biggest tactic, the most important tactic, is you have to get better clients. Everything is about better clients. You can't do what I just said while keeping the clients you already have, because all you will do is lower your income. Instead, you have to say, how much time is it going to take me to put into the world a body of work that will attract the kind of clients I need? How much insulation do I need from debt to be able to fire my worst clients? 
send them off to somebody else with a smile. Because if you do those two things, what you will discover is the time you open up starts being used by people who value what you've now created, as opposed to people who can't find a cheaper alternative to you. So much of this involves a two-letter word, no. (laughs) And I have found as someone who I like carrying a lot of energy and vitality into projects, into, into just in life, I enjoy carrying it. And this is a trap in, <laughs> we've built ourselves a, a little trap sometimes and pretend that you're giving me, or not even pretend, just give me some advice, someone who enjoys the product of communicating and connecting and building and doing so in community. And how do I reconcile that with uh, wanting to do work that's significant and wanting to be able to explore and, uh, and I, I think I'm willing to be misunderstood. I'm willing to be awkward. I've had to say no to, you know, all kinds of people and all sorts of circumstances, but, you know, coach me in real time here, how to, how to say no. I'll just leave it at that. Well, I try not to carry my regrets around because that leaves my hands too full to pick up something new. Um, I regret that when we first met and you invited me to Seattle to do a thing for six hours, I said, no. I would like to think I said no in a fairly kind way, but I said no. And I know why I said no. Um, and the answer is back to, we are here to make change happen, right? What was the change I was seeking to make? Is this a distraction from that change or is this going to lead to that change? And by obsessively focusing on the change, which is generative, and generous, I can say to somebody who is offering me a useful thing, but that is off the path, thank you, and I'm not going to be able to make that work. Because I appreciate that you're opening a door for me. I appreciate that there's something possible here, but it's going to cost me something, which is the change I signed up to make in the first place. Mm. And What happens is if we are afraid of the change or afraid to even acknowledge we're seeking to make a change, having a full day is the single best way to deal with the fear. We have a full day. We get to talk to our grandparents and say, I'm busy. Don't make fun of me for being a freelancer. I'm busy, busy, busy. On the other hand, if you're very clear about the change you seek to make and know what that will pay off for the people you are serving, You can look at somebody in the eye who's distracting you and say, honestly, thank you, because I would have killed for this opportunity a couple of years ago. But right now, I can't. And it's not because of you. It's because of my choices. Thank you. And by bringing that to the thank you, not criticizing the worker, but the work, this work you're asking me to do, I can't do it right now. I don't think you hurt anybody's feelings. I think you just put yourself on the spot to go make that change that is now costing you even more to make. Mm. Powerful stuff. 
Mileposts on the road to significance. I'm going to read a couple here. Number one, important organizations make change happen. Number two, which I would like to come, I think we've, I think we've understood the change through our conversation here and how that, how core that is, whether you're an individual or an organization. Number two needs explication. Humans are not a resource. We've all had our run-ins with human resources. <laughs> we've all, you know, own companies that had human resource departments and managed yes. them. And then you read this and I just felt like crawling under a rug because it's so true. What do you mean humans aren't a resource? So everyone's heard of Henry Ford, but Henry Ford uh, met this guy, Frederick Taylor, in 1911, two years after they found oil in Texas. and. Uh, Frederick Taylor had a stopwatch. And what Frederick Taylor said to Henry is, you're making these machines better and better. That's why the Model T Ford is going to be half the price of any other decent car. But the most expensive thing in your factory isn't the machines, it's the people. And if I use this stopwatch and I watch every single move they make, I can make them into a machine. And this is where the phrase getting jerked around came from. Because when people visited the Ford plant, it looks like the folks who worked there were marionettes jerked one way or another. And that's where the phrase human resources came from. Humans were a machine to be manipulated and maximized. And what we need to do if we want to get back to being human is to say, yes, we need a change from you, but no, I don't have any strings and I don't even know exactly how you should do the moves. All I know is we are on the same journey to make a change happen. What do you think you can contribute to that journey? Because when someone chooses to contribute, I don't have to manage them anymore. I get to be side by side, leading and being led. And that's where the bees come back in. Seek out useful imposters. Right. Okay. So <laughs> imposter syndrome is endemic among so many of us, particularly just about every person who's listening to this. We're inventing a future. We're doing something that hasn't been done before. It's easy to feel like a fraud. And the question is, how do you get rid of it? And my surprising answer is you don't. You can't. You embrace it because it's evidence that you're doing the right thing. Because leaders are imposters. They are asserting something that they cannot prove. When we do this, when we show up as an imposter in a useful way, we're exactly what is needed. We're not taking, we're giving. We're turning on lights. We're saying, I assert that this might work. As opposed to the accountant who says, I don't have enough proof. We need to study this more. Well, yeah, we can study it forever. There are people who are still trying to study whether uh, tobacco causes lung cancer. Guess what? It does. But you can always ask for one more study. What we needed was the doctor whose name escaped me who in the 1950s showed us enough. And when he published that paper bravely, shortly before he died of lung cancer, he made an important leap forward because he was acting as a scientist who said, this may be true. Here's my work. I'm showing my work. Now what happened? And we are all scientists about the culture saying, this might be a popular new clothing fashion. This might be a popular new color palette. This might be an interesting new way to edit a podcast. But 
you can't say those things and be sure, because if you are, you're lying. You're an imposter. But if you're useful, please join the team. In many of the same ways, you're saying that our future and the relationship that we have with being significant in the workplace, it could be on the cusp of change. And the change, we ought to be the change that we seek. The last one here, I mean, there's, to be fair, you've got 17 that I was thinking about asking you about, but I'm trying to choose <laughs> just a couple ones. Um, uncertainty is a big challenge for, uh, in large part for businesses, because the goal of, you know, I, I see this all the time in the creative process, for example, it's the producer's job in the production of a film to minimize uncertainty. You need to control for the weather, control the audio control. So that's why yeah. you rent the set or build the set or, or, or this is why in many cases you hire a particular actor because you've seen them do similar work and this is the yeah. kind of role that you're seeking. And so a, a producer's job on a set, say, or in a film, or you can extrapolate this is to minimize uncertainty. A project manager needs to ship a product on a yep. date that has a certain set of attributes that will delight the customers. Correct. And and yet it's the job of the inventor or the director or the actor or to create brilliance. And brilliance when there's only a certain type of weather, there's only a certain type of air you're breathing, there's only a certain yep. type of clothes that you could possibly put on. These are you know, you have another uh, blurb a little bit later, if I'm not mistaken, about tension. There's a this tension. Is, that was the word I was going for. The tension is real. The, there's tension there. And so talk to us about this tension that ought to exist, which is not necessarily bad, the tension that ought to exist. And then the balance of these things can create magic. In fact, that's right. part of the sort of the premise for magic to, or the, the, the environment to use a leadership word that you need to establish for brilliance to happen. But the punchline here is uncertainty is the devil in so many businesses because we're trying to do a thing on a time that can create a result. How can we reconcile all these things this as creators, as brilliant. entrepreneurs, as artists? Brilliant question. The tension is real. So I'll give you, I want to give you two examples. The first one is the Aravind Eye Hospital in India. If you add up all the people who have had their eyesight restored by Aravind, it's more than the total population of New York, Chicago, and Detroit put together. And if you go to Aravind for eye surgery, you have two choices, either $130 or zero. It's up to you. You get exactly the same eye surgery in either situation. The only difference is how comfortable is the recovery room. And there are two tracks for running Aravind. One track is the operating room. What they knew is that the thing that would put them out of business is if you didn't get your eyesight restored and you ended up blind. The infection rate for this surgery in rural India is less than in London. That they have built a McDonald's, like they use their word, a McDonald's-like process to do the surgery perfectly every time. And Eye doctors in the US fly to India and spend a month there training because they can do more eye surgeries per day there than they can do in a month in the US. They follow the checklist. They don't bring any creativity to their work. Then there's a whole other group of people whose job is to be human. 
to greet you when you wake up in the recovery room, to make you feel like you have dignity, even if this has been done with you for free. Those people don't have a McDonald's-like playbook. They have trust. And so they sit next to each other. And where creators often get in trouble is getting confused about which ones are important and which ones need human change to happen. So Stanley Kubrick is a great example. Stanley Kubrick uh, nearly killed through activity one of the actors in The Shining by making him say his lines more than 50 times until finally Jack Nicholson stepped in and said, it's enough. That Stanley Kubrick famously spent more than two and a half years filming Eyes Wide Shut, a movie that went spectacularly over budget. Because he was focusing too much energy on his ability to control things and not creating a safe place for breakthroughs to happen. That the breakthrough of the opening scene of 2001 didn't cost very much money at all. They're wearing monkey suits. But it's a breakthrough in a movie that cost, by today's budget standards, almost nothing because he and Arthur C. Clarke figured out which parts they had to button down and get done so they would have enough resources and time to do the parts that scared them. And as someone who's been a product manager and a brand manager who has never missed a budget and never missed a deadline, I am really strict about the things where it just, it, you want a custom typeface? No, we can't have a custom typeface. That will not be a creative breakthrough. That will just give you a place to hide. But this paragraph, this is boring. Rewrite this paragraph to make it really interesting. And it might not work, but it's not going to wreck our project either way. It's just going to give us one more piece that could make a change happen. So getting straight in your head the difference between the two and not falling into Pressfield resistance, that's an art form. Mm. And as a side note for people who missed that last one, Stephen Pressfield, the War of Art, has been a guest in the show, brilliant thinker. Resistance is that thing that we all face in taking on creative challenges. Uh, Seth, congratulations again on another masterpiece, the song of significance. Um, do you, uh, how many books is this? <laughs> I mean, 21, something like yeah, that? Yeah, something like that. Um, but it's important. I need to say seven or eight books ago, I stopped wanting to write books. Interesting. It's such a slog. The industry is in so much trouble. I only write one when I have no choice. I do not wake up and say, it's time for me to write a book. It's when a video or a blog post just couldn't do it justice. I need to serve the people I'm trying to teach and the people who want to read or follow and do something with the work. And so I'll pay the price of making a book. I love the people in the book industry, but it's so broken. And it's so exhausting. So I'm super proud of 21, but it's entirely possible that that's a good round number. You might not see another one. And even more of a reason to make sure to pick this book up. Again, The Song of Significance. Thank you so much, friend, for being on the show. Again, uh, I'm looking forward for, uh, I shared with you earlier that that I'd received some notes here a number of years later after uh, we shared the stage together in New York in a packed theater uh, I'm looking forward to another one of those at some point. Can't Our wait. time together is always uh, a, a treat for me. Anywhere else you'd steer people to? You, you, you mentioned you've been writing a blog for 
20 years 20 years haven't missed a day like give that. or take yeah there, there you go i you know what i want i don't want, do want people to read my blog i want them to write their blog i don't care if anybody reads it just write your blog every day it's like morning pages but better and even if no one read my blog i would still write it every day i don't think the people who listen to this podcast need more information and i don't think they need more time you just need to decide you need to decide to make a ruckus decide to ship the work decide to be significant and you probably already are but do it again mm. until next time for everyone out there listening thank you for being uh a part of our community for listening to the show and you know where to get this book and support seth and thank you for being our community until next time again from seth and i we both bid you great day and adieu go make a ruckus all right hey before you go thanks so much for listening and if you got value from this show chances are your community will too right in the particular lies the universal Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests either on social media or through my text community. All of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. <music>